From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The snow took its time getting here, but when it finally arrived, it was formidable. Stranding motorists, knocking out power. We'll talk about the forecasting challenge and about trees. The wet, heavy snow may have done a number on them, but it's not all bad. Given this year and the drought we've been in in Colorado, you know, this would definitely be refreshing. Then, the pandemic began with a misunderstanding of how the virus spreads. A misunderstanding that's a century old and is only just now being cleared up. The virus doesn't last in the environment very long. 90, 95% of it's gone within 24 hours after it hits the surface. We need to be worried about aerosol-based transmission. Plus, double masking and why disposable masks don't have to be. The coronavirus vaccine is rolling out across Colorado. Perhaps you're wondering if it's your turn, and if not, when will that be? And where can you get your shot? I'm health reporter John Daly from the CPR Newsroom. CPR News has all the information you need. Our guide to COVID vaccines in Colorado is always updated, and you'll find it at CPR.org. Click on COVID-19. While you're there, you can also read or listen to CPR's coverage of the pandemic. Again, at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. This weekend's blizzard dumped more snow than Colorado's front range has seen from a single storm in years. It started slowly Saturday with flurries. Then Sunday, whiteout conditions, closed highways, power outages, and broken branches. Denver was covered in two feet of wet snow. But during that slow start Saturday, some people took to Twitter to ask meteorologists, where's the blizzard? Obviously, nature answered that question Sunday. But longtime weatherman Ed Green of Nine News said he's used to the skepticism after 42 years forecasting Colorado weather. Ed, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. How did this blizzard stack up with previous Denver and Colorado storms? Well, I've been here a long time, and I remember way back to the Christmas blizzard of 82, and that was a paralyzing blizzard. And, of course, we've had certain, uh, certainly had blizzards between then and now. This one is the second biggest no- uh, March snowstorm ever and the fourth biggest snowstorm we've ever had in the city of Denver during recorded records. All right. It did indeed make some records, but... Uh, I want to talk about the nature of this storm. Uh, Maybe it differs from previous ones in this way. Uh, It arrived a bit later than forecasters predicted, Ed. Explain how stalling was key here. Well, this was a giant storm, a, a really massive storm. You don't get storms quite that big around here. And it takes it, it dropped out of what is normally the jet stream pattern. We call that a closed low. In other words, it's just sitting there all by itself. And if there's nothing behind it to push it along, it really slows down, sometimes stalls. And that's exactly what happened with this one. Large storm, slow mover, and finally ended up in southeastern Colorado, which is the optimum place to be for upslope, which means heavy snows for the eastern plains. 
Is there some sense of satisfaction when people doubt your weather predictions like they did on Saturday night and then the weather proves you right? <laughs> yeah, you know, there is. I mean, a lot of people just, I mean, immediately jump to the gun. You know, the thing about weather, it's not an exact science. You know, A plus B doesn't always equal C. Sometimes it's D, E, F, and G. And just when you got that figured out, it becomes H. So it's one of those things where you just have to know from having done it for so long uh, what the patterns do what they support and and what the outcome is going to be. So when you get a storm like this, and we saw all the ingredients for the storm, they just all came together late. So yes, we got hammered from people just saying, where's the storm? And in a nasty way as well. But when the storm finally hit with the fury it did and the amounts that we saw, yeah, you do feel a little bit of vindication, (laughs) I think. Colorado weather has a reputation for being hard to predict. What is it about this region that makes it hard to pull off the accurate to the hour forecasts people seem to expect? Well, it has to do with topography and really our mountains uh, to the west of us. I have seen storms come out of Utah, split, go north and south. Fort Collins gets snow, Colorado Springs gets snow, and Denver gets flurries, or vice versa. Uh, we get into that southeastern area, and that's where you need the um, you get the big upslope snows. But it can go 75 miles north or just 75 miles south, and that can change the forecast completely. Uh, so the topography is really what kind of gets these storms one way or another. Who took the biggest walloping in this storm, Ed, as you look, uh, you know, more locally along the Front Range? Well, Buckhorn Mountain got the biggest total amount that we've seen so far, and that was 42 inches of snow. Wow. Uh, places like uh, Nederland, they got 36 inches of snow. So there were a lot of three, uh, two and a half feet, three feet amounts. And then uh, again, uh, uh, Aspen Springs got 40 inches and Buckhorn Mountain got 42 inches. Why don't we wrap up with a question about climate change? I mean, I think a lot of us are curious whether individual weather patterns indicate something about uh, the extremes we expect because of a changing climate. Um, Any connection you'd draw there for us, Ed, before we go? I really do. This is, of course, climate change is a long, slow process, but we are beginning to see it. And what happens is you'll always get the snowstorms, except with climate change and global warming, they will be more intense storms. And that's kind of what we saw here. And I'm not saying we're going to get one of these storms every winter, but I think the frequency of storms like this and conversely powerful hurricanes and and other types of storms, I think with global warming and climate change, these just become stronger, more intense and more apparent. Well, Ed, thank you so much for the perspective. Well, I appreciate the, the, you letting me come on and, and uh, share my vindication for the storm <laughs> and uh, to talk to you guys. I, I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Ed Green of Nine News, longtime Colorado weather forecaster. Now that the snow's no longer coming down sideways, folks are starting to take stock of the aftermath. Some trees bent and broke in the storm, especially in Loveland and Fort Collins. And uh, Avery, I understand you talked with a forester about this. I did. I spoke with Max Erickson. He's with the Colorado State Forest Service, the field office in Fort Collins. Although when I spoke with him yesterday afternoon, the storm actually had him stranded in Winter Park. What did he have to say about how hard a storm like this is on trees? All this wet snow is mostly good for them. It's been an intensely dry year in Colorado. More than 98% of the state is in drought. Getting this amount of snow is really good, um, especially given this year and the, the drought we've been in in Colorado. So, you know, this is definitely refreshing. 
He said it's also good timing because trees haven't started to grow leaves yet, so the cold shouldn't pose much of a risk. Ah, okay. Uh, what did he have to say about uh, any action people might take, you know, if it seems like trees in their yard are weighed down by snow? Yeah, people can push on the lower branches to get that snow down, um, and that can help prevent the branches breaking, but Erickson said safety is the key here. Before you're getting out there under the trees or anything, just make sure to look up and see what hazards might exist, especially if there's utility lines around. Wood weighs a lot, so it can be dangerous. And something we just stress is, you know, reach out to the professionals. And if branches have already broken off, are there ways of keeping that tree healthy? Erickson recommended pruning near the broken branch's base. When you do prune them, you want to make sure you prune it back to that spot because what that does, the tree can help kind of heal from there and compartmentalize um, that wound um, and kind of reduce any future chance of, you know, infection or, or some rot that might develop further down. But, you know, depending upon the size of the branch, you know, we always definitely recommend, you know, calling the professionals too, especially when there's any safety hazard. He said people don't necessarily need to do that pruning in a matter of days, but the sooner they do it, the less risk there will be of rot or infection setting in. Avery, thanks so much. How was your commute? Did you? <laughs> I walked. You and, walked you know, in... It was a really nice walk. Loved the sun. Loved the clear weather. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was good. Uh, I snowshoed in, which was some, some good cardio this morning. Avery, oh, that's an adventure. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. CPR is Avery Lill, my co-host on Colorado Matters. When we come back, misconceptions about COVID-19 that go back a century. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Carol from Highlands Ranch. I'm an Evergreen member. Today is so stressful, and when I tune into CPR, either the news or the classical music, I just feel my soul renewed. You do offer a healing that you just don't realize the depth of, and I thank you for that. Thank you for your continued essential support for CPR. This doesn't happen without you. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We are entering a new phase of the pandemic, one that actually inspires some hope. More and more Coloradans are eligible for the vaccine. COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations are dropping again after a recent plateau. Of course, those variants are something to keep an eye on. A year in, scientists are still learning how the virus behaves and how people behave. Let's start this segment with CPR health reporter John Daly. Beyond vaccines, he found that wearing masks will continue to pacify the pandemic. On a sunny Tuesday, a man sits in his SUV in the parking lot of a Highlands Ranch big box store. Matt Doherty looks at the faces passing by. Are they wearing a mask? Do they have a mask but it's not fitted correctly? Or uh, do they just have no mask on at all? Doherty's a volunteer tracking mask use for Tri-County the health department for Adams, Arapaho, and Douglas counties. It's the only one in Colorado to compile mask data throughout the pandemic. Doherty, himself in a yellow mask, the surgical variety, keeps track via an app on his phone. So we've got 105 guests uh, wearing a mask. It's fitted correctly. A woman with dark hair wearing a mask properly. Check. Another mask on, covering the nose, no big gaps. Check. A mom, check for her, and three kids wearing masks, check, 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 but not everyone gets a check. Four guests who have a mask that's on, but it's not fully covering the mouth and nose, 
three guests who just didn't have a mask on at all. When the project began last June, 70% were seen wearing a mask. That leapt to 90% plus after the state and Tri-County ordered a mandate in July. Bottom line, Doherty says. Better than 90% masking is pretty much the norm now. Colorado ranks high nationally for mask use. Gunnison County, too, tracked it, finding 90% wore them in public. Health Director Joni Reynolds says the idea never got too contentious there. Early on, some prominent community figures died from COVID-19, which raised awareness. I think we had a lot of locals helping um, educate those that were visiting, sometimes in a friendly way and maybe other times in more of an enforcement way to say, we wear masks here, and that was the norm. Colorado is one of nearly three dozen states to require face coverings in public to curb COVID-19. The governors of a few, including in the West, have ditched statewide mask orders. Recently, Jared Polis was asked if he'd keep Colorado's mandate. The Democrat was noncommittal. If it helps you to wear a mask because Governor Polis ordered it, then please wear it. I just want you to wear a mask so we can save lives and end the pandemic. Even as things open up a bit, the end is not yet here, cautioned public health experts. The Colorado Rockies baseball team announced the state will allow Coors Field to open with 12,500 fans, but they must wear a mask except when eating or drinking. Expect that for concerts and more, says University of Colorado epidemiologist May Chu. The virus is going to be with us for a while. Mask wearing is going to last well into next year. Chu says research shows they work. One CDC study found hospitalization rates were lower in states with mandates. Chu says to reach broad community protection, Colorado will need both masks and many more people vaccinated. That is the way to reduce and essentially kill off the virus. And we need to get it right. But too often, Coloradans are not getting one part of it right. The public has not been well educated on what makes a good mask and what makes, you know, a less good mask. That's John Vulcans. He's a professor of mechanical engineering. We could be doing a lot better. He and his team set up sophisticated equipment in his lab at Colorado State. They tested seven masks used worldwide for the World Health Organization. Vulcan says they rated cloth masks, surgical masks, bandanas, and others to see which provide the best protection. The N95 is by far the one I would recommend. The N95 efficiently filters airborne particles, fits close to the face, and forms a seal around the nose and mouth. Vulcan says they can be hard to find, but... I encourage people to continue to seek them and increase demand because manufacturers will increase supply if demand is there. Vulcan says any mask is better than none, but he says do some research, get a safe one, and make sure it fits snugly with no gaps that might allow the virus to sneak past. Back in Highlands Ranch, volunteer Matt Doherty says he's happy to provide reliable mask data to help turn the tide. As we try to reopen, try to strike that right balance between safety and getting back to business. After a year of the pandemic, Doherty says it's about time. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Well, we are joined now by a pair of leading Colorado scientists, both experts in aerosol transmission, to talk about how the coronavirus infects people, also about masks and about ventilation, especially in schools. 
John Vulcans is a professor of mechanical engineering at Colorado State University. You heard him briefly in John's story. And Jose Luis Jimenez is a chemistry professor and institute fellow at CU Boulder. Jose Luis, John, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Happy to be here. And Jose Luis, one of the key scientific debates of the past year has been about COVID-19 and aerosol transmission, whether the virus travels through the air, you know, versus is spread on surfaces. You've been a really strong advocate for the idea that it does move through small aerosolized particles. What does the research tell us? I think now um, the evidence is overwhelming that um, the main way this, this virus spreads is through the air. We breathe it in. And actually, CDC has been saying this since October, that the main way this virus spreads is through inhalation. So, that, so we breathe in the virus. But they've been saying it in a really confusing way. And we also know that there are zero cases that have been demonstrated to be transmitted through surfaces. And I think every scientist agrees that transmission through surfaces is unlikely. And it's enough just to just wash our hands. But there is still a lot of waste of money and effort in disinfecting surfaces. I mean, it's remarkable given how much of an emphasis, especially early on, there was on hand washing and uh, touching one's face, that there is no proven case of COVID-19 transmission through what's what are called fomites, surfaces, objects? Yes, and it's remarkable, but this what this shows is this pandemic has uncovered an error. There is an error in, since 1910 in the fields of epidemiology and infectious diseases, in which they have thought that diseases that transmit well in close proximity, like COVID, are droplet surface diseases. This is wrong, but they have believed this for a century. So then when this disease appeared, they immediately said, oh, this looks like other diseases that we believe are transmitted through droplets and surfaces. So they told us without evidence. And they also believed that transmission through the air was almost impossible. So they said, so this is almost impossible. Hmm. And you know, and one evidence of this, one piece of evidence is WHO has a committee that decides how diseases are transmitted, right? So that committee has six hand washing experts, but that committee had and still has zero aerosol transmission experts because they believe that diseases are not transmitted through aerosols, right? So it's this bias that really led us into this this error, which has, has done a lot of damage for this pandemic. I mean, it's remarkable, as you say, how old you believe that error to be. And uh, I recall that uh, when you were on the program the last time, you shared with us the story of a choir in Washington state, and that this was for you a watershed moment in understanding that COVID-19 is transmitted through the air. Just briefly remind us what the Washington state choir uh, demonstrated? Well, there was um, that choir rehearsal happened on March 10th, and um, we learned about it from the Los Angeles Times, and I immediately got in touch with the choir, and we investigated, and we asked them in great detail what they did. And in my opinion, it's one of the clearest cases of the pandemic, in that it was 60 people that arrived to rehearse. They already know about surfaces, so nobody touches each other. They use hand sanitizers, the doors are propped open. So transmission through surfaces is difficult. And basically, they're very focused in the music, so they they don't chit-chat. They only have a break for 10 minutes where each person talks to two or three people. So it's impossible to have 15 minutes of close contact 
of one sick person with, with 52 others, right? So basically the only way these 52 people who could have been infected is through the air. And for us, it was clear, but, but it has taken a long time for the epidemiology community to accept these and many other cases, which are obvious evidence of transmission through the air. A good way, you say, to think of aerosols and how they travel is to picture cigarette smoke. Help us understand that. The idea is that when we breathe, when we talk, when we sing, when we cough, when we uh, yell, little bits, little balls of saliva and respiratory fluid leave us. And they come in two kinds, the big and the small ones. The big ones are what we call the the droplets, the spray of droplets. Mm. So they kind of fly through the air like little cannonballs. And they may infect you if they, for example, they hit you in the eye. And if they don't hit you, they fall to the ground. The other kind are the aerosols, which are the same saliva, same material, but they're smaller and they don't fall like a projectile and they don't fall to the ground. They float like cigarette smoke. And they do the same in a room like cigarette smoke does, but they are much fewer, so we cannot see them. But we know they are there. We can measure them with sophisticated instruments. And they move in the air the same as smoke. So we've been saying for almost a year that if you want to protect yourself from transmission, you have to imagine that anyone that you are sharing the air with, especially indoors, is smoking, and you have to do the things that in that situation would allow you to breathe less smoke, like opening the window or spending less time there and all that. Mm-hmm. Which leads nicely to a conversation about masks as key to keeping those droplets from spreading widely. And uh, so I want to bring you into this conversation John Vulcans from CSU, you've been examining masks, and as we heard in John Daly's story, researching which ones are best. I understand the lab at CSU is unique in its role testing the efficacy of masks and other protective gear. How so? Well, we were asked early on in the pandemic, back in March of 2020, to test masks coming into the state of Colorado. These are masks being directed towards front care healthline workers at a time when Masks were unobtainable in the U.S., especially N95 respirators. And the state was spending tens of millions of dollars per month on, on masks for healthcare workers. But of course, these masks were of unknown quality. And so we were asked by the governor to reproduce federal test protocols that are published and used to certify whether a mask meets the N95 standard so that the state could know what were the best masks and they were getting their money's worth in keeping their healthcare workers safe Hmm. from airborne transmission. What did you find and what changed as a result of your findings? Oh boy, so um, (laughs) we've tested thousands of masks and we did this during a time that everyone knows was essentially the wild west of masks, you know, uh, across really the, the world. We've all been looking for the best masks, and there's so much confusing information out there. What we did find is that about 25% of the masks that claim to be up to the N95 standard were not coming into the state. And the good news is that we were able to determine that 75% of the masks the state was ordering were up to the N95 standard. And so it was a crazy time. We literally were working almost 24 hours a day for a couple months. Masks would come in in million quantity shipments to DIA. They would be driven under guard by state troopers directly to our lab because the state had to buy these masks, collect on delivery. And they had typically 24 hours to either 
approve or refute a given shipment of masks. Wow. So we were very busy uh, early on the pandemic. And fortunately, the state has been able to find now many more suppliers of higher quality masks and N95 masks to protect their healthcare workers, which is really necessary. Now, I think of N95 masks as the Porsche of masks. Uh, am I to think of the cloth mask that I wear every day as the Geo Metro of masks? Or can I have some confidence that this is a reliable way to cover my mouth and nose? Yeah, the the first thing I'll say about masks is that any mask is better than no mask at all. As Jose indicated earlier, when we speak or even breathe, we emit particles uh, out of our body, large droplets, the kind of spit particles, and then the small ones, the aerosols. Even a poor mask, a poor functioning mask will stop the large droplets. And if you're within two or three feet of another individual having a conversation, it's possible that they can spit one of those particles out and it can land in your mouth and boom, you know, you've, you've received uh, their, their respiratory fluid or their saliva. And that, that necessarily is a bad thing. And all masks tend to drop those really big particles, tend to stop those really big particles. It's the well-performing masks, it's the well-fitting masks that have efficient filters that stop the aerosol. And an N95, the standard basically says that that mask uh, must stop 95% of the most penetrating particle size, which really means 99% of most particle sizes. So those masks are great. All right. I'm looking right now at our sound engineer, Michael Hughes, and he's got a cloth mask and underneath it, he's got one of those blue disposable masks. He's double masking. Um, talk to Michael Hughes. Is that a good choice? It is a good choice. It's much better than the blue mask by itself. The blue mask tends to have a very effective filter in it. Usually those blue masks, the filter can stop 90 or even 95% of, of particles. But no filter is effective if the air doesn't flow through it. And those blue masks tend to have huge gaps on the sides of the wearer's face and especially at the bridge of the nose. Mm -hmm. And the telltale signs for a, for a leaky mask are pretty simple. One is that if your glasses fog up, uh, if you if you wear glasses when you're wearing a mask, that means that most of the air is probably going around the bridge of your nose, straight up around the sides of your face. And this has been done through visualization where we use sophisticated techniques to look at airflow exiting the, the face. And you almost get this, this poof of air with each breath that goes out the sides of the mask and up uh, you know, over your forehead. John, if I, I feel called out by you because... <laughs> <laughs> I have been dealing with the fogged glasses and assuming yeah. that it's just, I don't know, almost a side effect of my vigilance. It may actually no. be a sign that I'm not doing things right. Well, it you know, you're wearing a leaky mask. Now, with a leaky mask like that, it you know, the, the degree of leak changes greatly. With some people, it might only be 20% of the air or 10% or of the air that's leaking. And that means 90% is going through the mask. With a double mask or any kind of uh, technology that holds that mask more tightly to your face, you're, you're essentially just forcing more of the air to go through the mask. One thing I can mm -hmm. say is, you know, I had a few N95s in my garage uh, that I have been dutifully recycling for the last uh, uh, year. Those masks, when I breathe through them and they're fitting well to my face, they don't fog up my glasses or my sunglasses. Um, I, yeah. One more tip I can give you sure. if you're not a glasses wearer is that if you go in front of the mirror 
with uh, an N95 on and it's fitting properly and you breathe out forcefully, you won't blink. If you have a leaky mask and you breathe out forcefully and that air goes up around the bridge of your nose, any air that ever hits your eyes uh, will make you blink. And so most people won't will, will fail to pass the blink test when they exhale forcefully with a leaky mask on. It's helpful to understand that double masking uh, is in part about the tightness around one's face. So I, I really appreciate that. Uh, Jose Luis Jimenez, based on what we know about masks and your research around aerosol transmission, I, I mean, how should this impact guidance and policy and restrictions? Well, um, we actually wrote a letter to the Biden administration and the CDC a couple of weeks ago where we were asking them, especially for workers at high risk, to increase the, the mask quality requirements through OSHA, to the Occupational and Health Safety Administration. And what we were recommending is people in high-risk high situations should wear N95s, and people in workers in other situations should wear masks of a certified quality according to the ASTM standard. Because right now, you can go to a supermarket and you can buy a cloth mask, and you really have no idea how good it is. It could be 10% effective, or it could be 90% effective. And... And is, is the Wild West still in that department, as, as um, John was saying? Mm-hmm. I have a question for you both. There's a headline in Kaiser Health News. CDC's huge mistake. Did misguided mask advice drive up COVID death toll for health workers? So this story raises questions about guidelines for who got the best protective gear and masks Based on earlier research, the most protective masks went to those working in the ICU rather than others working in what turned out to be more dangerous settings, especially early in a patient's care. Uh, You know, there was a lot of focus on intubating patients and how dangerous that might be. But the reporting finds that just basic coughing produces about 20 times the particles. What did you make of this? headline and others of the sort, John? The headline is essentially uh, repeating what the aerosol science community has been shouting, mostly through Twitter (laughs) and occasionally through uh, uh, standards like the National Academy of Sciences, that we need to be worried about aerosols and aerosol-based transmission. So unfortunately for, for folks like Jose and myself, this isn't surprising news to come out. We've been clamoring about this. The problem, of course, is that agencies like the CDC or the World Health Organization, they tend to move at a more biblical pace than (laughs) we would like. And it's, it's largely because they rely almost solely on randomized clinical trials with which to make their informed decisions. And there's nothing wrong with a randomized clinical trial. Uh, they're, you know, kind of the the state of the art for looking at uh, medical interventions. But the problem is, it's almost impossible to to conduct a randomized clinical trial in the real world when you're talking about an environmental pathogen like aerosol spread. I mean, you just, you can't control the experiment well enough to single out a a single thing. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, they really need to, to look at how they make decisions because a randomized clinical trial also can take up to a year to to, to complete. Now, in some cases, randomized clinical trials are absolutely necessary, like vaccines. 
But a vaccine is something that gets put into your arm or not, right? It's yes or no. Oh. With a mask study, it's almost impossible to do yes or no in the real world and, and then control the exposure, you know. And so it's not surprising where we are where we are. I appreciate the nuance of that because my first reaction was to say, well, if we're discounting the WHO's stance here, should I feel less confident in vaccines? But what you're saying is that those are very different questions. Uh, Jose Luis, do you want to add anything to this CDC huge mistake idea? I completely agree with everything that John said. And I'd like to add, I mean, it's been really frustrating to talk to WHO or public health people and, and basically be told that unless we have a randomized clinical trial, you know, they cannot we cannot install HEPA filters or something. Mm. And this is a a disconnect between scientific disciplines. I mean, medicine is dealing with, with extremely complex systems. Like if you put a vaccine in the body, so many things could happen. And you only with these clinical trials, with the statistics, you can figure out what's going on. But when you, are tr- when you know a disease is coming in aerosols in exhaled air, and we know there is a technology like a HEPA filter that removes aerosols from the air, it's just absurd to request a, a randomized clinical trial. And we were joking at some point, I mean, because in, 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 the, in the applied sciences, we work from first principles. We use phys- physics and chemistry to predict what's going to happen. And for example, is that, that analysis based on first principles that has allowed us, for example, to put a rover in Mars? But we're saying, you know, the first principles that allow us to put a rover in Mars are not good enough to put a filter in a classroom, oh. which is just absurd. Okay. Uh, bringing in the Martian exploration as an example of what science has achieved, uh, and yet you say that sort of science doesn't necessarily apply in these traditional circles. Um, so you mentioned HEPA filters. If let's say I, I'm thinking of advice for schools, if a school has a HEPA filter, is that just a better classroom? Is that a safer classroom? Is that your recommendation? It depends. I mean, what the first thing that I would recommend is, is use ventilation. I mean, masking, of course, good masks, higher quality masks, distance, hand washing, and then ventilation, which just means take the air. If someone is exhaling this virus, this invisible smoke, you want that air to start to go out immediately. So continuous ventilation through an open window, through a mechanical system. But in some places, uh, you cannot do enough with ventilation. And then that's where filters can be useful. So they are not necessarily required everywhere, but but they can be useful. And the one thing to to also mention is filters is a well-established technology that works very well, uh-huh. but there is a lot of snake oil technologies that are being sold like hotcakes right now with, with ions and plasmas and, and things that are not proven to be efficient or can even be dangerous, but yet they are being installed in school districts with very slick marketing from, from the companies involved. So we wanted to also warn people against that. Wow. Okay. Buyer beware on some of the filters. But I think I hear you saying that sometimes it is necessary just to open some windows. I mean, I know it's cold outside, but open some windows in a classroom. Is that what I hear you saying? Yes. And and we've been working with a lot of scientists around the world and open some windows in a typical classroom means open three windows about five to seven inches each. And that's enough to ventilate a classroom even when it's cold. So you can have, so you don't need to open the windows completely. Now, this varies classroom to classroom. So what we've been recommending is that people get a carbon dioxide meter, which tells you how much exhaled air 
there is in a space, and that's how you know how much to open the windows in your particular place. And if it's a very windy day, it may be enough with one inch. And if it's a day that's, that's very calm, you may need to open more. And that way you have a feedback that um, allows you to, to decide what to do. Yeah, so let me just underscore what you said there. A carbon dioxide detector, not the carbon monoxide detectors that are likely already in your home. Uh, the idea of a carbon dioxide detector, which I, I think are, are you know, kind of o- OTC, over-the-counter available, uh, is that they they can detect respiration, right? Yeah, we the, the food that we eat, we transform kind of our metabolism burns it into CO2 and we exhale that CO2, which indeed is not the same as carbon monoxide. And and that accumulates indoors. If, if you have people and, and the room is very well sealed or in a car, you will see the, car, the carbon dioxide climbs very high. If you have good ventilation, it will stay at a moderate level. And the virus that, that comes out at the same time as that CO2 is going to behave on a very similar way. So it's something that, that's very feasible and that is not expensive. I mean, you need these monitors that are based on infrared technology, NDIR, non-dispersed infrared, and they cost between $100 and $200. There, there mm. are cheaper monitors that you can find on Amazon for $30, but those don't really work. They don't really measure carbon dioxide. Infrared CO2 detectors. Okay. Um John Vulcans at CSU, a question about mask disposal and cleaning regimens. So let's go back to that idea of the the blue mask. Let's say you're layering and the blue mask is your first layer. How often can I reuse that mask? And then how often should I be washing the mask over it if there's a cloth mask? Yeah, so if you're using the the blue filter mask or, or even, you know, some of the more sophisticated, uh, I'll just call them white, uh, you know, more engineered masks like the KN95 mm-hmm. or the KF94 mask, the virus doesn't last in the environment very long. You know, most studies suggest that 90, 95% of it's gone within 24 hours after it hits a surface. So typically what I do is... I'll have a mask that, you know, if I'm double masking, let's just say it's a blue surgical mask. At the end of the day, if I've been out, I'll take that mask off very carefully, not, you know, being careful not to touch the the surface. Uh, I'll then just put it in a brown paper bag, leave the, leave the bag open to the air, uh, and I'll just leave it for three days. And then I can just put that mask back on. I don't need to do anything else to it. Um, You know, there's and if you're if you're worried, you could leave it for a week, uh, and so you have one mask a day, and you have seven brown paper bags, each labeled with a day of the week. As far as the lifetime of those masks, the filters, you know, in, in typical air that we're breathing in Colorado, the filter's not going to get loaded up to the point where it becomes ineffective for months. What's going to happen with the mask, as we all know, is that the straps um, are going to get too loose or or break, and so yeah. that's typically how these masks tend to tend to fail. Okay. So you can keep reusing masks again and again. Uh, and then the the outer mask, you know, that, that cloth mask is really just to hold that inner mask down. You can wash it as frequently as you want. Uh, or you can do the same thing that you've done with the blue mask, which is just keep them together in the same bag and keep them slightly ventilated, you know, wash your hands after you take them off and just let them sit open in air for a period of days and they'll be ready to go again. Jose Luis, I want to note that the Biden administration uh, is going to be distributing more than 25 million masks through community health centers and food pantries. Is that too little, too late, or the right course? 
Well, I, I don't know what quality of masks they are distributing, mm. but in principle, it, it's useful. It's a move in the right direction because especially, you know, masks do cost money. And if we mandate them, but people who who are at, at the poorer segments of society cannot afford them, then they will reuse the same mask or, or use cut a t-shirt or do things like that. So, so donating masks, it, it's a great practice, but I think we should put an emphasis on masks of sufficient quality, especially for essential workers, of which there are many in those communities. I went to the grocery store recently. It's actually the first time in a long time that I'd ventured inside one. And I was really struck by how many people had their masks down beneath their nose, how many noses were exposed. Um, John, for, for just a moment, talk to people whose masks fall below their nose or who just don't put them on their noses, are, are they doing any good whatsoever? They're doing some good, but it's little. I would liken it to driving on the highway with a 1950s era automobile that has only a lap seatbelt that you're not wearing. And the entire car is made of steel. And if you get into an accident, you're basically toast, right? You're basically, in that case, you're only using the mask to stop the really large droplets that you spray out of your mouth when you talk. So I suppose in that case, that mask is protecting someone else who you might speak to you know, within three feet away from being exposed. But it's doing little else because you are inhaling aerosol through your nose and you're exhaling aerosol through your nose as well. So you've basically defeated the aerosol uh, controlling purpose of the mask when you wear it that way. One more almost news you can use question. Uh, gentlemen, whoever wants to reply to this, given that more and more folks are getting vaccinated, should there be among those folks, a lessening of mask use, or should they be acting as usual? There's a couple reasons, good reasons, why to keep wearing your mask out in, in general public after you've been vaccinated. The first reason is that the vaccine really isn't effective until weeks after your second dose. Um, and, and very few people, you know, still are, are weeks out from their second dose. The second part is that we don't know if you, you know, just because you've been vaccinated means that you're not going to get, you know, a severe SARS-CoV-2 infection. But that doesn't mean that you can't have a little bit of the virus moving around in your body and infect someone else. Now, I think it's unlikely that that's the case, especially after we get most people vaccinated. But there's also this social norm of if you're not wearing your mask, you're telling the person across from you that they don't need to be wearing their mask. And so we need to all keep wearing masks mm. for the next few months until we get to 80% of the population vaccinated. I see. So there's an important, if, if you will, social symbol in this as well. Anything you want to add, Jose Luis, before we go? Uh, I agree completely with what John said. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I'm curious, just as we wrap up, how this pandemic has changed the trajectory of your professional lives. Do you feel, I don't know, derailed by these events or just like completely vindicated seems like the wrong word, but um, like this is your moment to, to keep the world safe or safer. What do you think, Jose Luis? 
Um, I would say both. I mean, the research that we normally do and that we continue to do ha has suffered. I've had less time for it, um, but we've been trying to continue at the highest intensity level as possible. But um, I got into researching these issues and also doing a lot of public communication because I just saw that the tremendous errors that organizations like WHO and CDC were doing and how they were misleading the public. They were early in the pandemic, they were distributing disinformation. They were disinforming about how the virus is transmitted. So then many scientists, I mean, and I'm, I'm one of many, we basically jumped into the fray and started communicating with the public and talking to the press. And this is something that I had done very little of mm -hmm. and I had very little experience of, but it was really needed. And in my case, I realized that there were many experts communicating in English, but almost almost none in Spanish. So I, I have devoted myself to communicating with the, the Spanish-speaking community in the U.S. and the Spanish-speaking countries. And uh, I think made a huge impact. I mean, I can count, recount many interviews, like the first interview I was giving in Argentina and in Paraguay and in Peru. And, and every time the journalists couldn't close their mouth of the shock, like, do you mean this goes through the air? Can you, did we hear that right? You know, so I, I feel there has been a, something that, that was a moral duty to do. John, do you want to say just a few words about how the trajectory of your career has been affected by COVID-19? Well, I feel like I have uh, been working two jobs for the last year, <laughs> and that's been exhausting, but also very rewarding, because it's clear that the work that we've been doing, uh, myself, Jose, and many other aerosol scientists across the country, has finally started to make an impact. And we're helping save lives, and especially in our own backyard in Colorado. That's something that, that I'm proud to say I can be part of. Gentlemen, thanks for your time. Thank you. You're very welcome. John Vulcans is a professor of mechanical engineering at Colorado State University. Jose Luis Jimenez is a chemistry professor and fellow at CERES, the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences at CU Boulder. Finally today, for Irish and Celtic music artists, March is normally their busiest, most lucrative time. And this time last year, Colorado was locking down right before St. Patrick's Day. The big Denver parade was canceled. A year later, and many COVID restrictions are still in place. Bar and pub crowds are limited, which leaves many artists around the state missing out on yet another season of steady gigs. And so they're coming together for the Colorado Celtic Musicians Broadcast, a free virtual concert featuring dozens of acts. The organizers are Fort Collins Irish rock band, The Commoners. This old man, he came rolling home. His old rucksack at his side So many tales seeping from his home Couldn't believe them all if you The commoners there. The lineup also features a set from the group Avorni of Denver. Frontman Adam Goldstein says Wednesday's virtual show is a testament to the music community's spirit and grit. Still, he says, nothing compares to playing for people who are right there in front of you. I have 
yet to find that kind of impact when you're in a crowd that knows these tunes, that can sing along. It's so communal and it's so joyful and it does really tap into a tradition that you feel goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. It was Friday morn when we set sail and we were not far from the land when our captain he spied a mermaid's The Colorado Celtic Musicians Broadcast streams on YouTube and Facebook 5 p.m. Wednesday, St. Patrick's Day. And thanks to the merry band that puts Colorado Matters together. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to John Daly. This is CPR News.